morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Dancos. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I have a question for you. How many of you have ever heard the word frenemy? Who's heard the word frenemy? I have some really interesting information about the word frenemy. The very first time that the word frenemy was published was here in the Reno area in 1953. That's pretty cool, right? It was in the Nevada State Journal, now known as the Reno Gazette Journal. And for those of you who don't know what a frenemy is, here's a good definition of a frenemy. A person with whom one is friendly despite a fundamental dislike or rivalry. So it's someone that you act friendly to, but you don't feel friendly towards. You know what I mean? And so we kind of wonder, like, why would you even keep a frenemy around? Like, what, why would you do that? But here's the thing. Social scientists, they've studied humans, and they've realized we are innately a social and relational species. And so it goes against our nature to eliminate relationships. And on top of that, it's that we think about the social consequences of eliminating a relationship, right? Because it's not just that person, it's that person and all the people that you are similarly connected to. And we have this innate fear of social isolation. And so what we do is we keep these people around even though we don't really like them and the relationship is pretty unpleasant. So there's different types of frenemies. There's the one-sided frenemy where one person feels hostility, but the other one maybe doesn't or doesn't even know that's going on. Like, like this one, for example. You know, Homer Simpson and Ned Flanders. I don't think Ned has a problem with Homer, but Homer has a big problem with Ned, right? Or maybe this one. Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, right? Mickey seems to be fine, but Donald Duck, he... He thinks of Mickey as his frenemy, right? You also have the work frenemy. The work frenemy is the one where, like, you have to work together, so you have to be pleasant, but underneath you have this rivalry, and I think no one embodies it better than this. You know, <laughs> Dwight and Jim. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, and then you can, your neighbor can be your frenemy, and it's really hard to get rid of a neighbor. So, like, you know, you could have Seinfeld and Newman there, right? And you just got this person, and you're like, oh, I, I'm not just going to move away from them, but I don't really like them. And then sometimes... Your frenemy can be a family member, and you really can't get rid of them. So Thor and Loki, yep. And then, because here's the thing about frenemies or these types of relationships, they bring out the worst in us, right? They bring out this passive-aggressive behavior, or we say one thing, and we mean something else, and like we think thoughts that maybe we're not proud of. And I think no one embodies the frenemy better than this clip that I have from one of my favorite shows, Fresh Off the Boat. I think this shows how we can behave with a frenemy. And so we can, we can fall into this trap with people where, you know, we can, we can start to think one thing and say another. And I think the frenemy embodies our, our deadly sin of the week better than anything. And our deadly sin this week is envy. And envy goes beyond jealousy, right? Jealousy is one thing. Envy goes deeper than that. Let me break it down for you. So most healthy relationships start out with contentment. You know, if you're, if you're in a good relationship, contentment is I have what I want and I want what I have. Right? And so I'm content, you're content. And then when our relationships start to get unhealthy, they start to spiral downward. And they can start with jealousy. And jealousy says, I want what you have. Right? I want something, I want something like what you have. I see your thing. I like your car. I wish I had that car. I, I wish I had that house. Or I wish I had those clothes. Or I wish I had that job. So jealousy is like, I want something like you have. And then we can get into greed. We spiral down into greed, which is, I want more than what you have, right? Or I want better than what, like you might have that car. I want the better version. I want the bigger house. I want the better job. Envy goes deeper than that. Envy says, I don't want you to have what you have, even if I don't get it, right? 
Envy is more, jealousy says, I want something like what you have. Envy says, I don't want you to have it. I wish I had it, but even if I don't get it, I wish you didn't have it. Rebecca DeYoung says it well. She says, the envier is at least as concerned that her rival not have it. It gives the envier satisfaction to see her rival's good taken away, even if she herself does not acquire it as a result. And see, at the heart of envy is social comparison, where I start to measure myself against other people and to see how I stack up. And am I ahead or am I behind? And when we get into envy, we start to think the world is stacked against me. The world, I'm not winning. And so envy gets to this place of saying, actually, I want to bring you down. Greed and jealousy want to bring us up, right? I wish I was where you were. But envy says, I want to bring you down to where I am. Frederick Buechner says that envy's trademark is that it wishes everyone was, uh, would be as unsuccessful as you are. Right? And so it's this idea of I'm not winning, and I don't want you to win either. And so it gets really, really ugly. And so Jesus... He tells this story that really gets at the heart of envy and comparison. And, you know, as we've been saying, all of these seven deadly sins, they're more than just behavior. They're all about something that's going on inside of us, something that's at the heart level. And so this is the story. Jesus tells this parable um, to a group of people. And this is what he says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. And so they went. He went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and, and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call all the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who came, came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or have you, are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Okay, so Jesus sets up the story, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. So what he's saying is, the way this story operates, this shows you how the kingdom of God is going to operate. And he gives two different scenes in the story. The first is the hiring scene, right? And so in the hiring scene, there's a landowner, he's a, he owns a vineyard, and he's going out to the market to hire day laborers. So it's harvest season, so he's going to need extra people to pick grapes and you know, run donkeys and guard the crops and all of that. So these day laborers, they would go to the market, and they would wait to be hired. Now, here's the thing about day laborers. They are of the lowest social class besides slaves. 
right? So they don't have a lot of rights. They don't have a lot of means for themselves. These are socially low, dependent people, okay? And so the landowner comes along, and at, at 6 a.m., that's the normal time that a vineyard owner would come and hire people. And he finds this group of people, and he says, you guys, let's agree on what, what you're going to get paid, a denarius for a day's work. And they say, awesome good to go. Because that was the normal time that you hired someone for the normal amount of work, and that would be a normal rate, right? So it's not overly generous. It's not, he's not like scrimping them. It's just, this would be what you would expect, right? So the story starts, and then the landowner starts doing strange things, because he comes back to the market again uh, four more times. And so he comes back at nine and hires some people, and Jesus says, he doesn't say what they're going to work for. He says, I'll pay you what's fair, so all the listeners to Jesus' story, is assume, they're assuming, oh, what's fair is they'll get a percentage of whatever the time is, because the other people work three more hours, and then he comes back at noon, and he comes back at, at um, three, and then he comes back at five. And at five o'clock, this is often known as the 11th hour, the way that they measured their day, the 11th hour, so think about that. You know, something done at the 11th hour is at the last minute, right? The, the workday ends at six. So he comes and he finds this group of people. He says, why are you hanging around here? And they said, no one wanted to hire us. We, we wanted to work. And there was no, no one said yes to us. So he says, you two come and work. And so they do one hour's worth of work. And then Jesus tells the second part of the story, the payment started part of the story. And he says, but, you know, the foreman is going to pay them from the last to the first. And so the last come, and they've only worked one hour, and they get a denarius. And Jesus is setting the audience up, right? He is setting them up to be surprised. He does this all the time. He's a master storyteller. And so you start to feel like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen with those first workers. Because, I mean, if he gave these guys a denarius for one hour, and so the first workers are thinking the same thing because they're watching everyone get paid. And they come up, and they get a denarius too, and they go, not fair, not fair. This isn't what, you should give us more. This isn't fair. The, and, and so, again, Jesus has intentionally surprised the listener because there's something in us that agrees with the first workers, right? Because this is what they say. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. The first workers worked 12 hours, and they get the same pay as these guys, these jokers who show up for one hour. And part of us is like, yeah, those work. I mean, Jesus, what is going on with this story? Because we think that's not fair. Put yourself in their situation, right? If you work 12 hours and someone gets paid for one hour, you'd be like, wait a second. But this is what the landowner responds with. He says, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Notice, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? See, they assume that the landowner is being unjust and that he's being unfair. And he says, I'm not being unfair. This is what we agreed to. This is the normal work, the normal pay. This is what was expected. I haven't cheated you. I haven't changed the circumstances. I'm not being unfair to you, but it feels unfair. They look at that generosity because he says, can I do what I want with my money? I can do whatever I want with my money. It's mine to give. And then he gives the clincher. He says, are you envious 
because I am generous. And that word envious in the Greek actually says, is your eye evil? Is your eye evil? And that was an idiom of the day, a phrase of the day, because eyesight was more than just physical eyesight. When they said the eye, you know, when Jesus says later, like the eye is the lamp of the body and all that, the eye was your perception, your perspective on the world. And so he says, is your eye distorted? Is your perception on the world diseased? Is something wrong with the way that you are perceiving this situation? It's not that the circumstances are unfair. The circumstances are exactly what they agreed to. And if they had gotten paid first, they wouldn't be unhappy. They wouldn't be walking around going, we only got a denarius. I thought you were going to give us more. They would say, well, that's what we agreed with. Fair. Totally fair. Where their, perspe their perspective gets off is they start to look at what other people are getting paid. And suddenly they go, well, that, if they got that, then I should get more. I deserve more. Something's not right here. Because they say to the owner, well, you paying them the same as me, you made them equal to us. But that's not really what they mean. Underneath that, what they're really saying is, you paying them the same as us, you made us less. You made me less because that person got the same amount as I got, and that is not fair. And that is at the heart of envy. See, envy is about comparison, and at the heart of envy is inferiority. This sense of, I'm losing. I am inferior. And see, envy, it focuses on possessions and positions, right? And saying, like, you have something, you have this possession that I want, or you have this position that I want. But it's not really about the external thing. Really, it focuses on external things because of an internal lack, a deep fear of inferiority, that I measure myself against you and I come up wanting. Again, Rebecca DeYoung puts it like this. We envy not the car, but the superiority, the classiness of the person driving it. Getting the right car is just a means to that end of being the right person. Not to have the car is not just to lack the thing, but to be less of a person, to be deficient or defective. His or her lack makes the envier feel less lovable, less admirable, less worthy as a person. See, envy deals with how we define ourselves, with our sense of identity. And it, and it comes up saying, I look less than you. I feel inferior to you. And because our whole world is built on social comparisons. You know, if you think about someone being tall or someone being short, someone being rich or someone being poor, someone being educated or not, it's in, it's in comparison to yourself, right? I mean, I think some people are tall and other people might think that they're short compared to where, where they stand, right? So we compare ourselves to one another and try to figure out where do I sit in the world? And envy comes up saying, I keep coming up short. I keep coming up inferior. But here's why envy is the, is the deadly sin that makes us the most miserable. Like last week we talked about how wrath can be one of the most fun deadly sins because it feels good to get all riled up and mad and, you know, indignant. Envy makes us miserable because at the heart, we feel unlovable. We feel like we're the have-nots, and we feel like we're less, but nobody wants to admit that. It's the paradox of envy. You feel inferior, but you, you expect and, and think that you should feel superior. 
And so we're stuck in this miserable cycle. And envy, because it makes us so miserable and we don't want to admit that we feel inferior to others, we mask it and we hide it. And envy thrives in secrecy. Envy thrives in secrecy because envy, it starts from a place of feeling inferior but needing to feel superior. And here's the difference between admiration and envy. See, admiration looks at someone, an, an accomplishment or something that they've done, and we go, huh, that's inspiring. Maybe that could be me. Admiration is future-oriented. Think, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could accomplish that. It's about possibility and inspiration. Envy, you know, admiration says that could be me. Envy is all past-oriented. It says that could have been me. That could have been me. It looks at someone else's success or accomplishment, and it feels like we lost. They gained, and we lost. And so we envy people. We don't tend to envy people who are way, 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 way far from us. Like, I don't envy Olympic gold medalists, because I never think, like, I could do that. I could probably go to the Olympics and win a gold medal, right? I admire them, and I think they're fantastic and wonderful. But you can envy the person who's just right next to you. Right, and you start to, so I'm running a marathon right now, I'm training for a marathon, and the other day I did a, a run, and I felt so good about it, like I ran the, the most I'd ever run, and I came home, was telling my husband, and then I went online, and I looked, and someone else was training for a marathon, and they ran an eight-minute mile, and I was like, I can't run an eight-minute mile, and suddenly I started to think, uh, well, now I'm inferior to that person, even though a minute earlier, I was thinking how great I was, and how excited I was, and so envy, it, it, it envy, you envy the person right next to you that you could be in their shoes. You could have had their job. You could have written a book. You could have gotten married to that person. You could have bought that house. You could have afforded this. You could have moved. You could have, but the world was stacked against you, and they got it, and you didn't, and so you're losing, and you don't think, oh, I could win too. Not when it comes to envy. We think, well, I can't win, and I don't want you to win either because that makes me feel worse, so I want to bring you down. You know, we might not actively do it, but that's the desire in envy is I actually wish for you to not have it because you having it makes me feel less, makes me feel like, like I don't get it. Um, again, Rebecca DeYoung, she says like, like this, if we think about the people we envy and why we envy them in particular, a pattern emerges. Enviers don't usually envy those who are far removed from their lives and lifestyles or who are vastly more talented or successful than they are. They tend to envy people to whom they might actually be compared unfavorably. That is, those who are just like them, only better, right? And that's who we envy. Those who are just like us, but only, only better. And we think, oh, that could have been me. That could have been me, but life didn't work out for me. And even, you know, they've done studies. So I don't, I don't envy a gold medalist. But you know who the most unhappy Olympians are? Silver medalists. They're the most unhappy because they think that could have been me. They've done this study after study. And the happiest are bronze because they're the ones who are like, I didn't even think I was going to place, and I did. It's so awesome, right? Like, they're, it's all perspective. It's all about where's your eye. You know, that's what Jesus is saying, where is your eye? And so we, when, we, when we fall into envy, I mean, Jesus says the law can be summed up in this. Love God with all your heart and love others as yourself. And see, enviers can't fulfill that second part because enviers at their heart have a deep lack of self-love. We feel inferior when we fall into envy. We feel like we don't measure up and that the world is against us, but we desire to be superior, to look superior. We start to try to fill that inferiority with competition and comparison to see, I need to come out on top. 
right? And this is where we fall into what I call, what's known as the false self, right? It's not really you, it's, the, it's your winning strategy. It's, if I put this out, then people will like it and reward it. And often that is true. People will reward your false self, but it leaves us feeling even worse because if you have to win approval, then you could lose approval, right? It could go away. And so we feel insecure and nervous and worried. And David Benner describes the false self like this. He says, my long-standing investment in being respected has been an attempt to control my environment and guarantee the sense of specialness to which I have become addicted. The bondage in any false self is bondage of having to keep up the illusion. My compulsive pursuit of accomplishments and the respect of people who are important to me suffocates the life of my true self. It binds and inhibits my growth and restricts my freedom. See, we try to perform our way out of feeling inferior, but it doesn't work. And so one of the ways, you know, some of you might be like, I don't envy people, you know, like I don't wish, wish harm on others. I think everyone's great. There's four characteristics of the false self, and if you start to identify with these, there's a good chance that you've got this sense of inferiority at the center of your heart, and when inferiority sets in, envy is right there alongside of it. So here's the four characteristics of the, of the false self. This is kind of our heart check, as we've been talking about each week. What's going on inside your heart? The first sign, the first characteristic of the false self is that it is fearful. We are fearful at our core because, in a sense, we feel like a fraud. I could be found out at any moment. Like, yeah, sure, everybody thinks I'm great at this, or everybody thinks that I'm awesome or I'm confident, but at core, I don't feel like I'm actually all that good. I don't feel like I've got it all together. And if someone finds me out, then it, the, the gig is up. And then, then what do I do? Right? And so other people start to become threatening to us because they might expose what's really under the surface. And so our false self is afraid, always afraid that that it's going to be found out. And then, and then we fall into the next step, which is possessive. Possessive, because we start to say, well, I'm keeping up appearances, right? And I need you to like me and approve of me. And I know that it, underneath that doesn't really feel real, but maybe like I can fool you. And one of the ways that I measure if I'm successful is by what I own and what I accomplish. And so when we get possessive, if we start to feel like I can't be generous, I can't share, I can't, if, you, if I give you that, then I have less. If I, if, I, if I do this, then, then I lose out. That's a sure sign that we've got some sort of inferiority going on inside of our heart because we start to say, I am what I own, and I am what I do, and I have to keep that. And it's all about protection, right? The false self gets protective. It says, well, you know, other people are a threat, and the world is a threat, and I need to make sure that I get mine and I keep mine and that nobody else gets it. And then the third thing that we start to see in the false self is that we become controlling, we become controlling, and we try to control our environment. So this might be like, you always need to be in charge, right? Because what if someone else is in charge, you know what's going to happen, or you need to have all the information. You always need to have all the information. Or it could be like it, controlling how your house looks, or your Instagram feed, or uh, even how your family appears and how they behave, because you, you are controlling what, what people see, but you can also start to be controlling relationally where you are managing other people's perception of you. 
And so it becomes manipulative. If I say the right things, or I look the right way, or I dress the part, or you know, over here, I say these types of things, but when I'm over here, I say these types of things, because I want people to see me in a particular light. I'm trying to control what's going on. And it can look like self-promotion, right? where look how great I am, and let me tell you all of my accomplishments, because I really want you to know how wonderful I am. Or it can look like blame, because we can't, we couldn't accept mistakes because that would take a knock on the appearance I'm trying to keep up. And so someone else's, it's them. It's someone else who did it. And then the last part is the, the false self becomes divisive. And Steve always loves it because I grew up in New England. I say divisive. I know a lot of you say divisive, but I grew up saying divisive, so it's divisive um, for me. Uh, but and even that, with divisive, we start, because we're measuring ourselves against others and we need to feel superior, we start creating categories. Right? Well, you fit in this category, and I'm better than that category. And you fit in this category, and I'm definitely better than that category. And we start to make in-groups and out-groups. And where do I feel like I have this sense of superiority? We start to look for people's flaws, and we measure them against you know, whether I'm better or not, because we need to keep coming up looking good. But here's the thing with the false self. None of those things actually solve the inferiority that's at the heart, right? Looking superior doesn't fix what's going on at the heart level. And so we're still left feeling insecure, fearful, afraid, and, and ultimately we're miserable, right? When we are in this, in this mode, we're totally miserable. We're unhappy, and there's a reason why it says misery loves company. You know, that's why we want to bring people down with us, because we don't sense that there's a way out. And when we get into this place, Jesus says, envy... The problem with envy is your perspective. Is your eye evil? Is your eye diseased? Is your perception of the world distorted? Because when we get into this mode of feeling inferior, the world stacked against us, I'm trying to look superior, and I can't perform my way out of it, ultimately we become blind to God's blessings in our own life. We stop seeing all the blessings that we do have, and then we become resentful of the blessings in other people's lives. And we look at them and say, well, they got a blessing, and I didn't. And I know this was true for me when I fell into envy. So I've shared part of the story before. I try to be really open about it uh, because I know this is a lot of people's reality, that Steve and I, you know, we have a daughter. Her name is Imogen. She's going to be nine in a little bit. And uh, we had a hard time getting pregnant with her, but we got some help. And then we had a beautiful daughter, and we assumed it would be the same thing with a second child, you know, that we'd... We'd get some help, and it might be tricky along the way, but we'd be fine. Well, it didn't work out that way. We went through three years of infertility treatment, and you know, those of you who are going through infertility, I know there's a lot of you out there, uh, it's like moving goalposts. You know, they keep, like, there's never anyone who just comes to you and says, you cannot have a baby. They say, well, we could try this, and then we could try this, and then we could try this, and, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And, so, and when you're in it, it is devastating because it's just a regular thing that you just, you're immersed in it. And so we were going through this miserable experience. And as I'm going through this miserable experience, suddenly I start to see this ugly thing pop up in, in me, which was envy. Because it wasn't just like, oh, I'm jealous that they have a baby and I don't have a baby. I started to think, well, why did they get it and I didn't get it? What, what's wrong with me and what's so special about them? Right? And, and I couldn't be happy for people who were pregnant, and I couldn't, I couldn't like go to baby showers for my friends, and I was just, I was, it was eating me up inside. But here's the thing with envy: nobody wants to admit it. 
Nobody actually wants to bring it out into the light. It thrives in secrecy. And so what did I do? I had this inferiority going on inside of me of why am, I, why am I the one who's missing out? And each time I thought, you know, the world doesn't work this way, but you start to think like, well, there's only so many babies to go around and they got it and I didn't. Like, that's not the way it really works. But you start to think, well, this month they won the lottery and I didn't win the lottery. And that doesn't feel fair. So I threw myself into my career you know, and was like, I'm going to be spectacular at my job, and I'm going to look awesome, I'm going to do all these things. And no one knew what was going on. No one knew the suffering that was going on. But I started to get resentful, not, not only towards other people, but resentful towards God. And I started avoiding God. And anytime I did talk to God, I was just bitter and angry and say, I don't have a lot to say to you because you apparently don't want to answer my prayers, and I don't know why I'd talk to you. I'm in professional ministries. That was really rough. You know, it was a hard season to go through. And Ultimately, I became blinded. I was blinded to the blessings of God in my own life, and I became resentful of the blessings in other people's lives. And, and this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get at in his parable. This is exactly what he's trying to talk because he says, this scenario right here that I've just played out for you, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And if we're honest, a lot of us on the surface go, well, then the kingdom of God doesn't feel very fair. I don't, why, that doesn't feel right. You know, someone works 12 hours and they get paid the same as someone who works one hour. Like, what? And some of you might know the right, like, no, God's kingdom. Like, that's fine. God can do what he wants. But if you really put yourself in the situation, you go, that's not fair. It doesn't feel fair. Why does God's kingdom work like that, Jesus? You know, and, and, and this is the problem with fair, right? Jesus says, it's all about your perspective. And how do we measure fair? We measure fair by what works out for us, right? How we end up winning. How we, it's fair if I benefit. That's really what's fair. I mean, any of you who have children, you know, like, it doesn't matter. You could cut the pieces. You could weigh them out, cut them out the exact same. Someone's going to say it's not fair. They have more than me, right? Because fair is when I come out on top. And that's exactly what happened with the first workers, right? They, they would have been content if they got their denarius first, but they say it's not fair because they start to compare with other people. But what they, they became blind to their own blessing. See, they looked and they said, your generosity towards them is bad and evil, and, it, and it, it's not good towards us. Like, it's, it's, it's bringing us down. But here's the thing. They were all in the same boat. They were all day laborers. None of them could provide for themselves. Every single one of them needed to be hired and needed to be paid. Every single one of them. And, and all of them were hired and paid, right? They, they all got, and, and so James Bryan Smith, I've used this quote a bunch. You'll hear it over and over again because it's one of those quotes that I think you can't hear it enough because Jesus is talking about grace, and the problem is we don't really like grace. This is what he says. He says, Jesus is striking at the heart of the problem we have with grace. We don't like it. It seems unfair, but in reality, it is perfectly fair. God is gracious to all. It smacks against our performance-based acceptance narrative. See, the kingdom of God is not merit-based for anyone. For anyone. No one earns more grace than the other. Jesus is saying, this is what grace is like. Everyone needs the exact same grace. Not, we don't need a different type of grace or more grace. or let, Everyone needs the exact same, and everyone gets the exact same amount of grace, no matter how you wind up there. Because the first workers were able to work a day's worth of work. 
they were chosen at the beginning of the day. And if it had worked out the way the world works, then they would have gotten paid more than these workers who probably couldn't work a whole day's worth of work. They were people that were rejected over and over. It wasn't that they didn't want to work. They stayed at the market all day long, hoping against hope that someone would hire them. And Jesus is saying, none of you earn your way into the kingdom. That's not how the kingdom works. That's not how grace works. We don't compare blessings to one another. That's not how God sees us. God wants to pull all of us up. Envy creeps into our hearts when we fail to believe that. When we stop trusting that God is actually for all of us, and we start comparing and say, well, God's maybe more for you than for me. And we lose sight of the character of God. And so God's kingdom is not merit-based. And the remedy to evil, to evil, the remedy to envy isn't your success or my success or your failure or my failure. The circumstances aren't the remedy. Jesus says it is your perspective. It is your perspective that will heal envy. And so I have two remedies for envy, two that really that helped me when I was stuck in envy and two that I hope would help you. Because remember, envy blinds us to God's blessings in our life and therefore makes us resentful of God's blessings in, the others, in other people's lives. And so the first remedy to, to envy is gratitude, is gratitude. And that can feel like, oh, just be grateful, you know, but gratitude isn't just like, okay, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel thankful. Gratitude is a choice. It is a decision to what you look at. And so for me, I had to basically put blinders on in my life. And I went off social media, and I had to go, go like this. You know, where I'm not looking around. Because the first workers would have been happy if they hadn't been looking at everyone else, right? If they had just seen what God, what the owner gave them, they would have been fine. But they start looking around, and now they're unhappy. And that's what happens to us. We lose sight of God's blessings because we start looking around and go, well, they got that, and I don't have it. But if we just looked at our own life, I mean, I started a gratitude journal during that season. And in the beginning of every page, I would write, thank you, God, for life, for breath, and for faith. Three major gifts that I get every day. I'm alive today. You've put breath in my lungs. And I have faith that has saved my life. And then I started looking around and saying, look at all of the things I do have. Look at all the ways that God has blessed me. Um, and and one, of the, one of the things I started to do is look at the family I do have. right? Because I was so focused on the family that I wanted that I didn't have. And I started to say, but what's the family that I do have? And I have a tattoo on my arm here. You can't really see it because I got a jacket on. But it's a, it's a baseball cap. And Steve has the exact same one, and it has our three initials on it, S, M, and I, because our nickname is Team Dan Cause. And so we got this to remind ourselves, this is our, this is our family. You know, when we knew that we weren't going to be able to have a second child, we wanted to mark that, you know what, we, we are, we do have a family, and we're grateful for that. And so for you, if you're stuck in envy, the first step is where are the blessings in God's life? The, the Bible tells us that even the ability to work is a blessing. You know, the, the, the ability that you can find meaningful work. I mean, the fact that you have breath in your lungs, that you are alive today, is a blessing. If you started to think about the things that if you lost them, if you lost your sense of taste, if you lost your vision, if you lost your hearing, if you lost your hair, if you lost your leg, 
Those are all things that you would miss, right? They are blessings that you have today that you can be grateful for. And so one of the things that we can start to do to remedy evil, to remedy envy, is to, to stop looking around and measuring ourselves against other people, thinking God gives some blessings to these people and not to me, and look at our own lives and see all of the blessings that we have. And the second remedy to envy is vulnerability. Because envy tells us this lie that you are suffering alone. You are all alone and everyone else is so much better and they have it better and so you need to bring them down because you can't get up. The world's stacked against you. And so I know for me, I kept my story secret for a long time. And when I finally started telling it, you know, I, I was met with empathy. I was met with love. And as I've been able to tell my story over the years, I've, and I do not believe that God makes bad things happen in our lives so that we can do good things. That's, I don't think that's how God works. We don't see that with Jesus. But I do believe that nothing is wasted in the kingdom of God. Not even your pain, not your disappointment, not the things that didn't go your way. And God has used this story in my life to bring others up, to show others hope. I can't tell you the number of couples and women that I have sat with and grieved with and been able to, to share hope with, to say there is life on the other side of this, even if it doesn't go your way. God is still good, even if you end up not getting what you wanted. And so vulnerability is, is not dismissing our pain and our suffering. It is allowing others who have earned the right to hear it, not just anyone, but those who have earned the right to hear our story and where we're struggling and where we're suffering and where we feel like life isn't going for us and going the way that we want it to go for us and, and allowing them in to come alongside of us to say you're not alone because envy says you're all alone. You're all alone so you might as well tear people down because you can't get up. And so allowing people, allowing people to love us in those, in those moments is so healing. It's so healing. Because here's the thing. In the kingdom of God, there are no inferior people and there are no superior people. There are just loved, forgiven, redeemed people. All, every single one of us receives the same grace if we want it. And it doesn't matter if you come to it at the 11th hour, if you came to it all your life, it doesn't matter if you crawl towards it or you run towards it. That grace is available. And so when we practice gratitude and vulnerability, we draw closer to the heart of God and we begin to, to recognize and realize it's not that some people get pulled up and some people get pulled down. It's that God wants to pull everyone up. That is the heart of God. And when we actually live into that and we actually tap into that, we stop needing to pull others down because we trust that God's going to bring us up. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you knowing that many of us do struggle with envy. And, and often we, we look around and we start comparing ourselves to others and we think you're good to some people and not good to others and inferiority can creep in and then we can fall into these patterns of trying to prop ourselves up and bring others down. And we confess that this is not good and it is not of you. And God, we are thankful for the reminder that your kingdom doesn't work that way. In your kingdom, everyone gets pulled up because you are a gracious, 
loving God who wants to set us free and help us not to resent your generosity, but to recognize it in our own lives and celebrate it in the lives of others. God, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite us to stand up. And we're going to respond in worship. And it's a song that reminds us that God is good. God will never let you go. God will never let you down because God loves you more than you could ever imagine. <laughs>